Thanks be to God. Before we consider today's scripture reading or today's message, I want to thank all the people who've made worship possible today. A special word of thanks to Jennifer. Imagine saying, yes, I'd be happy to be a scripture reader in service. And then you look down and you see the words, Pi, Hahiroth, and Baal Zephon. So thank you very much, Jennifer, for your fearlessness. A word to all of you. If you ever find yourself in that situation, act confident, hit it hard, and move on, okay? No one else knows how it's pronounced. I want to say thanks to the gathering band. A special word of thanks to all the people who are part of youth ministry across the street, children's ministry upstairs, the people in adult discipleship, our hospitality and welcome team, and a special word today to all of our tech folks who are connecting us live or recorded online. Thank you so much for making that possible. Hello to everyone who's here in Fifth Street. Hello to everyone who's worshiping online, live with us right now, the website, social media, catching up later on a podcast. It all counts. God bless you. I'm so glad you are here with us today. My name is Lance Marshall. I'm the senior pastor here at the First United Methodist Church of Fort Worth, and I'm thrilled to be back with you. It took last Sunday off from preaching because it was UMW Sunday, and one of my favorite things to do in the world is preach, and my second favorite thing to do in the world is occasionally not preach. And so I really enjoyed that break. I'm feeling refreshed and renewed took a trip this week to uh, the Leadership Institute at a United Methodist Church outside of Kansas City. It was a gathering of United Methodist pastors and lay leaders and staff members from all over the connection, and it was energizing and encouraging. I talked to United Methodists from Washington State to Florida over the course of the last week, and God is doing amazing things in our church and in our churches. And I came back really, one, really encouraged, and also like Y'all are all great, and I also, I love my church. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be back in my church, and so I'm just so glad to be back here with you. Uh, a couple things I want to start today. I want to start with a, a story. So if you've heard me speak over the course of time, you may have heard me tell stories about life with my friends, and I feel like I have a pretty normal number of friends, but I've got a very particular group of friends that are my closest and my oldest friends. And when I tell a story about me and my friends, 95% of the time a story I'm telling you has to do with Corey or Drew, Andy or Mike, Kelly and Elizabeth. Those are my closest friends. And we all had other friends throughout junior high and high school, but by the end of high school, we were that tight group, right? The hanging out all the time, doing everything together group of friends. And a lot of us went to the same college. A couple went to other colleges. We stayed close together throughout college. We were standing up in all of each other's weddings. We know all of each other's kids' names and birthdays and traveled to see each other. And it's, it's that close group of friends, right? I mean, I hope that you're blessed with a similar group. And if you're not, it's not too late. But I'm really thankful to have, in addition to newer friends, that group of old friends. And if I had to explain to you what that group of friends means to me, like how they get me and the difference that they've made in their life, I would probably tell you this story. And I'm thankful this story has a picture with it. So I took a photo of it on my phone yesterday and I sent it here. Uh, that's me at age 18. It was taken in May of 2002. And if you're thinking to yourself, I didn't know that flannel trilby hats were popular in May of 2002. They were not. They were not. They absolutely were not. And that picture was taken in a very specific moment. So we were a, uh, a group of high school friends that had all just graduated, and Kelly's parents had a lake house. And we were honestly a very trustworthy group of kids. And so the parents said, like, yeah, school's out. Y'all are done. Y'all can go to the lake house for the week, and it'll be, just be y'all, right? 
And that was really cool. And we were excited to go do it. It was our first chance to do something kind of grown like that, you know, go to the lake house, just us, no adult supervision. And it was really fun. We were all excited and we were meeting up together before we would caravan out to the lake house. And uh, if you've heard me speak over the years, you've also heard me share something with you that I struggle with anxiety. I have a real issue with anxiety. It's been a part of my life ever since junior high. And particularly, I have really strong physical symptoms of anxiety. They're pretty bad. And at this point in my life, I was having really bad symptoms, and I didn't have the tools in my toolbox that I have now to help address them. And so for reasons that I can't explain, or I don't know why at the time, we're in the middle of going to the lake house, right? It's just us and our friends. It's people that I know and love better than anybody else in the world. And we're going to a place very, I've never been there before, but I have no anxiety about this place. And yet for some reason, parked outside of one of our friend's house, waiting for other people to show up, I have a panic attack. Anybody ever had that? A panic attack that you just can't explain for no reason. And this picture is taken in a very specific place. It is taken of me sitting in the driver's seat of my car, my 1994 Pontiac Firebird, which I looked it up. I looked up the stats recently. It is both slower and less powerful than my current minivan. But still, (laughs) but still, it was my piece of junk Pontiac Firebird that I loved. And that's luggage in the back for the trip. Um, to uh, the lake house, and that's my refillable QT coffee cup. And the picture is taken of me in the car because I can't get out of the car. I can't get out of the car. I'm having a panic attack, and I can't get out of the car. And we're just sitting there waiting, but I just physically can't get out of the car. I know I'm going to collapse if I get out of the car. And there's two pictures. Unfortunately, the other picture has been lost to time and moves, but this picture survived. And there's two pictures. Uh, The first picture was all of us taken together. Let's go take a group photo but I can't be in the group photo because I can't get out of the car. So what do my friends do? They crowd around the window of the car so that I'm in the photo too, right? Because they get me and because they know me and because they love me and they accept me and they're there for me even when I'm suffering a panic attack and can't get out of the car. And the second photo is this one that was taken by my then high school girlfriend with a Kodak Fun Saver camera, now my wife. And uh, she took this picture because I'm starting to laugh and I'm starting to come out of it, and they got me out of it, right? My friends are the kind of people who will accommodate me and be with me when I'm at a low moment that I can't explain, when I can't get out of it myself, and they're the kind of people who will only be with me. They'll help me drag out of it, right? Those are my friends, and that's what they mean to me, and I can't just describe that to you. I have to tell you that story. Please take that photo off the screen (laughs) as as quick as you can, even though, man, hair used to be so easy, didn't it? Sometimes we can tell a story to help explain something, right? That'd be otherwise hard to explain. Sometimes the story helps us remember. If you're new to this church, there's a story that we tell all the time at our church. So if you're not familiar, there's been Methodists in Fort Worth ever since Fort Worth was a fort, right? And there's always been Methodists here, and we're the first Methodist church that was here, hence the name. We're the first Methodist church. This is actually our fourth location of the church. The church has been here since the mid-1800s, and we didn't start at, uh, at Fifth and Henderson Street. This wasn't even part of the city yet. We had other locations. And in 1929, our church was worshiping at 7th and Taylor. And we had a church building. It no longer stands, but it was big enough for our church. So the 7th and Taylor church was big enough for our church as it existed at that time in 1929. But our church knew the people who occupied our church our community of faith in 1929, at that point, right, almost 90 years into its history, 
they realized that God was going to do more in the life of this congregation. They needed to plan accordingly. And so they knew that they weren't going to be able to grow to continue to meet new people. So they built a sanctuary big enough to accommodate the future growth in the life of the church. And that's why they bought property here at Fifth and Henderson, because it was going to have enough room for us to grow out so that God could continue to work through this congregation for decades. And October 29th, 1929, they had a groundbreaking ceremony, right? You know, that's where the ribbons and the the scissors and those kind of things come from. So they had a ceremony and the bishop spoke and they did the ceremonial shovel thing. We still have the shovel in the archives. They did the overturning of the dirt and that was the ceremonial groundbreaking, the beginning of the construction of the new sanctuary. And then they went home and I'm sure they celebrated and they woke up the next morning and they got their copy of the paper and they discovered that the stock market had crashed the day before, the day that they broke ground on the new building that was gonna cost a million dollars And then the stock market had crashed. It was the beginning of the Great Depression, the very day. That's the beginning of the Great Depression. And if you've ever been part of churches that are in the middle of of building things, you know that the church doesn't start with all of the funds on hand. Rather, the congregation makes pledges to say, over the course of the next few years of this construction and beyond, we will be able to give certain amounts of money to help fund the ongoing construction costs and make this building possible. Then, like now, buildings are built on pledges, on promises. So people made promises that said, I'm going to be able to support the construction of this new facility through my business or through my employment over the course of the next few years. And then all of that is gone because the stock market has collapsed. The economy is in worse shape than it's ever been in in the history of the United States, now in the history of the industrialized world. Can you imagine what it's like to make that kind of a promise and a commitment based on your understanding of what your job's going to be able to provide you? or the business that you own, or the practice that you have is going to be able to support you with, and it's out of that you're going to be able to support the church, and then everything is gone? Y'all, I hate to admit it, but if I was one of the members of that church, I might have snuck out with that shovel and that dirt and like, (laughs) (laughs) we're good, right? They hung in there. They continued on in the middle of the Great Depression. They built this church, moved over, made possible what's happened in the church, the life of this congregation for the next 90 years. And we tell that story all the time in the life of our congregation because it's not a story about money. And it's not a story about buildings. It's a story about faith. It's a story about trust. It's a story about courage. It's a story about perseverance. And if you're a member of the First United Methodist Church of Fort Worth, you are inheritors. You're part of that family. That family story of courage and trust and faith and perseverance is your story. It's our story, and that's why we tell that story so often. It reminds us of who we are and God's faithfulness in the midst of moments that seem insurpassable. So it's that idea of the stories who both explain and remind and shape us that I want us to look through this scripture reading today. We're in the middle of a series called The Power of the Promise. As I introduced the series right after the first Sunday after Labor Day, that's kind of the beginning of the church year. In every church in the United States, kind of like that post-school, post-Labor Day September is really the big kickoff when everyone's done with vacations and everyone's back home in the life of the church. And it's really kind of the beginning of our year. And so I really wanted to focus on these foundational stories, these kind of key bedrock stories in the life of faith that come to us from the Hebrew Bible. And I didn't want to just read the stories for their own sake. I wanted to look at them through the lens of something that would apply to your everyday life. And so we've been using this language of promise. The, the churchy, scripturey word for promise is covenant. 
One of the things that I need you to understand in your everyday life, your Monday through Friday faith, that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. The first story was the story about the covenant that God makes with creation after the flood. And it's a story that God reveals to God's people so that people understand, even in the face of catastrophe, even in the face of unimaginable circumstances, I need you to know humanity. I do not take creation with capricious attitudes, right? I'm not going to just wipe everything out. I'm not going to start over. God's saying to humanity, I'm not going to give up. That's the promise I make with all of you. That's the, living into the power of that promise impacts the kind of choices and the kind of life that we can live day to day and frames our understanding of the catastrophes around us. The next week, we looked at the story of Abram and Sarai, people that were willing to leave everything that mattered to them, their land and their people, at the age and stage of life where most folks are getting really ready to settle down and wind things down, they uproot everything and go to an unknown place for an unknown purpose other than God has called us to this and promised us that through this we will be blessed and be a blessing to many. This is in people who don't have the kind of church or scripture or stories that we do. They're on the cutting edge and they're willing to step out in faith. God makes a covenant not only with those two people, but with all the people yet to come, that it's in that kind of faith that you're going to receive my saving grace. So thankful to Pastor Phyllis and our team last week to bridging the gap over to how that story begins with now the people of Israel, and it begins with Moses, begins in this moment of slavery and oppression, begins with the marginalized and the outsiders, people who are overlooked and outcast. And it's God revealing and making a promise that it's through the people of whom little is expected that I will do many great things. It's a promise that for those who are on the underside or overlooked or cast out, not only do you matter to me, but through you I will continue to do amazing things. And it's that context, this promise of power, that I want to look into our scripture reading today. We've been reading over the course of uh, the sermon series. I've asked you to join me in praying the Wesley Covenant Prayer every single day throughout the series. We've been praying it in each one of our services. Remember, covenant's that fancy language for promise. So I've been asking you to do this for a couple of reasons. One, to shape your own faith and your faith language about trusting God. Two, I've been really curious to know, what's God going to do with us? What's, gonna, what's God going to do with the church that prays this kind of prayer, that has this kind of faith, that says, God, whatever you have for me, whatever you have for us, whatever's next for this church, God, yes. Whatever it is, yes. What's God going to do with a people in a church like that? And I have to be, uh, I have to tell you, I always appreciate feedback. I really, really always appreciate good feedback, but any feedback's good. <laughs> and I've heard, I've heard from a couple of you that shared this point that you are explicitly not praying this prayer. And it's not because it's not, you can't find a copy of it because we made a QR code that you can get it on your cell phone. We're passing out stickers, clings for your bathroom mirrors. I mean, we're practically chasing you down the street and putting this in your pocket. A couple of you are explicitly not praying this prayer for one particular reason. And what I want to do is honor that reason because it's actually a very good reason. And I want to tie that together to our scripture reading today. So, the story happens like this. The people of Israel live in Egypt. They haven't yet come to know and live in the promised land. They're led there through the story of the patriarchs, but what becomes, what becomes being a part of life in Egypt and, eventually, and originally escaping a drought has now turned into over 400 years of slavery. Of slavery. They're slaves. 
They're the kind of people who are used and abused and taken advantage of, and that's just the world they know. I mean, think about how long 400 years is, right? And think of how long the United States has been around, and it is not near 400 years. And that's been the reality. This slavery and this oppression has been the reality for people and their parents and their great, 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 greats. That's all they know. And God reveals through the prophet Moses that I'm pulling you out of here. I'm not done with you. I have plans for you. I have purposes for you. I have work to do in you and through you and for all of humanity. It's going to begin with you getting out of here. So there's the story of the plagues, and then eventually they're let free. You guys all know Charlton Heston's story. That joke used to get more laughs, and it's getting lower over time. I might need to find a new reference. You all know Moses' story, and they arise at this point. The literal translation is the Reed Sea. We know that it's a body of water that people can't pass on their own. And while at one point Pharaoh lost his will and lost his conviction and said that the people could go, he's now changed his mind and he's chasing them back down. All of these slaves, 600,000 people, that's a huge percentage of the portion of all of the land. We can't let them go. We can't give up on that wealth, on that comfort. It's that we're going to go get them back. And so he's chasing them down with chariots, and that's a very important piece of language I'm going to catch you up on here in a moment. They've actually caught them up. They're at Pihaharoth and Baal, the other one. They're at these two campsites, and they've caught up. And the people of Israel, they lose their nerve. They lose their nerve. They lose their hope. Yeah, we've seen these incredible works that God's done back in Egypt to bring us out of this place, but, I mean, look— Let's, let's face it. Let the facts be the facts, right? We're up against a wall. We can't get past. And on the other side of it is the most formidable army the world has ever known. When the original audiences were hearing these words and they hear references to an army that has uh, horse-mounted fighters and chariots, that is the modern-day equivalent of, what, tanks? Intercontinental missiles? Nuclear bombs? I mean, it is the not only most dominant military technology of the day, but the people who have them have all the power because no one else stands a chance. So the original audiences hearing that would say 600 chariots, game over. Game over. There's nothing we can do, right? And I want to draw your attention back because so many of us know the story and, and we see Moses with his arm spreads and the wind separating the waters and the people going through it. But this is the portion of the story I really wanted to focus on today. The language and the attitude of the people of Israel. Verse 11, if y'all could bring it up on the screen. The people of Israel, in great fear, said, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone that we can serve the Egyptians. Serve is a euphemism. To be slaves is their language. For it would have been better for us to be slaves to the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. In the midst of this moment, all of their conviction is gone. All of their trust is gone. All of their ability to imagine the kind of future that God has promised to them is gone. Look, we're between a wall that we can't pass and the greatest strength that the world has to offer behind us. Why'd you bring us out here? It would have been better just to live in the world that we knew as terrible as it was than to just die out here in the middle of nowhere for nothing. It's one of the greatest displays of lack of faith that you're going to find in Scripture. It's one of the greatest displays of the lack of faith that you can find in Scripture. And it comes from people who have been traumatized. 
It comes from people who have been oppressed, whose very bones carry the stories of what it is to not even be able to imagine freedom anymore at this point. I think it's so easy to imagine Moses yelling at them or shaming them, right? Or doing something to try to, mo- to motivate them. And instead, Moses speaks to them with the word of grace. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. God's got a purpose in this moment. God's got a purpose for the people of Israel. God's got a story for them that God's going to tell in this moment so that they can tell it and retell it over and over and over again. At this beginning of their story, right, the beginning of establishing who God is for them and who God is for us, God brings them to a place where there seems to be no hope, where they're literally stuck between a rock and a hard place, where behind them are the greatest forces the world has to hurt them and us, to oppress them and us, to scare them and us, to intimidate them and us, to push them and us to the place of doubt and disbelief. And God says, bring it on. Because I got something I want to show you. They do nothing. They do nothing. They accomplish nothing on their own. They achieve nothing on their own. They have no plan. They have no army. They have no strategy. All they do is sit and wait, and that's all they have to do because God is writing a story. Spread those waters. Walk on through, and then watch what happens when the power of the world tries to stop you. That's who I am, God says. That's who I am. That's how I relate to the world. That's who I am in the face of whatever it is that you have to fear. Whatever it is that you imagine is the greatest or the strongest or the biggest or the best or the thing that can hurt me most or intimidate me the most or scare me the most. That's who I am. The people of Israel tell that story over and over and over again for thousands of years to this very day because that's the story of who they are and that's the story of who their God is. In the same way that I say, do you want to know the heart of my friends? Let me tell you a story of who they are when I need them. If I say, you want to know the conviction of our church and what we're like? Let me tell you a story. And it's powerful not just because it happened one day, but because it keeps happening over and over and over again because that story is our story now. The story of this moment, of this miraculous provision at the Reed Sea, is a story of who God is when we are at our lowest and our most doubting and our worst, and who God is in the face of everything we think is going to hold us down. That's who God is. And that's the story we tell over and over and over again. A couple people said, yeah, I'm not going to pray that covenant prayer. I'm not going to pray this prayer that says, God, whatever you want, let me have it. Even if it is nothing, even if it's being set aside, even if it's being called into something beyond my comfort zone or what I feel prepared for right now, I'm not going to pray it because what if God says something back? That's a really good reason. I love that reason. 
That's a reason of really taking it seriously. Amen? That's a reason of really understanding that God really does real things in our life. Amen? I understand what it's like to say, yeah, I'm not going to pray that prayer because uh, what if God says something? What if God tells me it's time to change my profession? What if God's going to tell me to change something with my purpose? What if God's going to do something or ask me to be something that changes my understanding of provision or personality or anything else that starts with a P? I just want to tell you this. Whatever God calls you to in the private time of you praying the covenant prayer, in the private time of you listening to God together as a church, of us saying, God, whatever you have for us, whatever's next for us, whatever you would do with us, yes, and more, whatever God calls you to is always better for you than what God is calling you away from. Whatever God is calling you to is always better than what God is calling you away from. I didn't say easier. I didn't say more comfortable. I did not say more popular. But it is always better. For those who are scared to open up their hearts and say this prayer with everything that they are, understand that, yeah, you may get called into something that is deeply uncomfortable, is deeply unpopular, or is very, very, very hard, but I need you to know that it is always better. Today's World Communion Sunday. It's the first Sunday in October. It's a Sunday for churches that aren't as focused on the sacrament of Holy Communion to really emphasize it in the coming together at their table. It has a little bit less resonance in a, in a service like the gathering where we do communion every single Sunday. But it's important to know that as we receive communion today, as we come forward to the altar to receive the bread and to receive the cup, that we do so with our brothers and sisters of faith all around the world. Because we are the people that are rescued by God between the rock and the hard place. We are the people whose God is bigger than whatever it seems to hold us down. But we are also the people who understand that that story is made perfect and that story is made universal and that story is made applicable and actionable in our lives through the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. We're the people who have seen our God overcome whatever it is that threatens us through Christ. And it's living into that promise, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, that God loves you that Christ died for you, that Christ lives for you. It's living into that promise that shapes us every single day, not just Sunday mornings, but our Monday through Friday faith. As we come to the table to receive Holy Communion, we do so standing on the promises of our living God, of our powerful God, of our present God and our working God, knowing that God is bigger than whatever it is that we fear today. Let's pray. Great and loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, great are you and greatly to be praised today, O God. We praise you for your work when standing between a rock and a hard place, the unpassable and the unconquerable, that you show us who you are, greater than what we fear, greater than what causes us to panic or to flee. Reminder that whatever you call us to, no matter how scary or uncomfortable, it's always better and the comfortable thing that we're leaving behind. Lord, we ask that you show us how to stand on these promises. We ask how you show us 
what it is to make a promise, to live into a promise, to receive the promises that you have for us. Guide us, keep us, shape us in the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray the words that he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.